We are looking at Mark 10, verse 32 to verse 34. Now, a couple of years ago, I read a story about a woman in California called AJ, right? AJ suffers from a rare medical condition whereby she remembers everything. Since she was 11 years old, she remembers practically every day in astonishing detail. She remembers exactly what she had for breakfast 30 years ago. She remembers each episode of television shows she watched in the 80s. Our memory actually has been described like a non, like it's like a non-stop movie. But of course, our life is quite heartbreaking, isn't it? If you can't forget stuff, it's quite heartbreaking. You can imagine for for those heartbreaking situations she's encountered, she always remembers them. And in fact, AJ struggles to make decisions. Uh, she finds it difficult to form meaningful relationships with people because she can't move beyond the past. And as I thought about AJ's life, it reminded me that forgetting is often good for us. It's good. God has given us the capacity to forget. It's, it's really a, a good thing. The problem is that as human beings, we tend to remember what we should forget and forget what we should remember. And the thing that we forget most is the word of God that God has given us. You know how many times have you tried to memorize the passage of Scripture? You're just struggling to, to remember it. You, you forget it next week. But you watch a TV show, and all of a sudden, you know, it's everything that happened in it, you remember very well. Lines from it. So we forget, especially to remember the Word of God. And, and Jesus knows this. Uh, that is why, while he was on earth, he, repeated, uh, he repeatedly told his followers that he was going to die for their sins. He didn't want them to forget this fact. He wanted them to know that this is why he came into this world, to lay down his life for our sins. And as we've been going through Mark, we've already seen Jesus make this point three times already. And now he's talking about it for the fourth time. Even though your Bibles may say the third prediction, he's actually talking about this for the fourth time. And he reminds them that he's going to die in these verses that we touched on this morning. Let me just read, uh, particularly from verse 33 to verse 34, the verses we just read, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him, and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. What Jesus is describing is his future humiliation. We might call this a preview of the cross. It is what will happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. It is the reason that he has come. And this afternoon, I just want to share four things that Jesus teaches us. Yeah, today is four points. Jesus teaches us uh, from this passage about his humiliation, his suffering. The first thing that Jesus teaches here is that Jesus was betrayed for us. Jesus was betrayed for us. We see here that for the second time in Mark, Jesus tells us that he's going to be delivered over. We see that in verse 33, isn't it? The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests 
In other translation of the Bible that you may have there at your own Bible, it says you will be betrayed over, particularly the NIV says that Jesus will be, it says he will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. Now, Mark has already told us in Mark chapter 3, verse 19, we looked at this, that Judas is the one who's going to betray Jesus. Because when he's given the list of the disciples, he says, he ends with Judas in verse 19 of chapter 3, and Judas who betrayed him. Jesus here doesn't reveal who will betray him, but it's quite clear from reading Mark that it is Judas, and we know that, of course, from history in general. You know, when you think about Judas, a good case can be made that Judas was one of the closest disciples of Jesus, one of the very closest friends of Christ. Jesus, of course, has already chosen him as one of the 12 apostles. We know that. But we also know that Jesus has given him an important role in the ministry of being his treasurer. I don't think Jesus would have just gone down the street and picked anyone to be a treasurer. He thought about Judas' character and he gave him this responsibility. But more than that, when we look at the sitting arrangement of the Last Supper, I don't know if you've thought about it, we see, that we see two things. First of all, we see John sitting at the right hand of Jesus. In the ancient world, that is a place of the honored guest. That's where John sat. On the left of Jesus was Judas Iscariot. In the ancient world, that was known as the place of the intimate friend. And therefore, Judas, I don't think he's just one of the disciples, he's an intimate personal friend of Jesus. And in fact, that is, in some sense, reminds us, isn't it, when you read Psalm 41, uh, in Psalm 41, verse 9, he talks about the fact that it is his intimate friend who betrayed him. Amazingly, uh, even as Jesus, though, is, uh, is telling his disciples here that he will be betrayed to the chief priests, he knows it's going to be by Judas, who is standing next to him. Because John 6, verse 64, tells us that Jesus knew who was going to betray him. Isn't it? So we think about this and immediately we realize that Jesus can stop what's going on here. Uh, he can just get rid of Judas, right? But, but he doesn't. He allows himself to be betrayed by his intimate friend. And we know it happened because we read this in Mark chapter 14, verse 10 to verse 11. Flick over to Mark 14, verse 10 to 11. We, there we read about the betrayal of Judas. Mark 14, verse 10 to 11 says this. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him many. And he, that is Judas, sought an opportunity to betray him, that is Christ. We jump over to verse 41 of Mark chapter 14. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping? That is Jesus. And taking your rest. It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, 
let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And this 43 says, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd of swords, a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. That's the betrayal of Christ, which Christ predicted and has now happened at the hands of Judas. Now, as I think about this betrayal of Jesus uh, by Judas, it is difficult for us to fathom, to understand how Judas goes from trusted disciple and intimate friend to become a traitor of his Lord and murderer. And we'll explore this issue a bit more detail when we come to those later chapters. But what is clear here is that Jesus was not a helpless victim at the hands of Judas. Uh, he willingly allowed himself to be deceived and sought off by his intimate friend. And you know what? Judas was not the only disciple who betrayed Jesus. Peter betrays the trust of Jesus, isn't he? He denies Jesus three times in exchange for his own safety. And all of the apostles deserted Jesus, didn't they, at that time? They ran away from Jesus uh, in exchange for their comfort and security. And Jesus knew they would all be Judases. Jesus knew that. And yet he allowed it to happen. Why did our Lord do this? Why did he allow uh, Judas and the rest of the disciples to betray him, to, uh, to, to abandon him like this? To betray his trust in them. Well, because Jesus came to exchange his loyalty and faithfulness for our betrayal. You see, all of us are Judases before God. Sin is a betrayal of God's love. God loves you. But you don't always treat him with love. You sin against him. You've sinned against him today. You've had wrong thoughts of God. All sin is betrayal. Every time you sin, you are saying, I am Judas. When you are sinning, you are selling God off to, for some cheap passing pleasure. You are saying, I am willing to betray the one who has loved me before the foundation of the world. I'm willing to betray him because I want this thing now. And you know, the good news of Jesus is that yes, you are a betrayer. Yes, you are a Judas. Yes, you deserve eternal punishment for betraying God just as Judas does. But God in Jesus has allowed himself to be betrayed all the way to the cross so that your betrayal of him now, well, can be forgiven because Christ has allowed himself to be betrayed on the cross. Uh, this is the good news of Jesus. If you are in Jesus, God has wiped away your betrayal against him. Past, present, future. It's all been wiped away. You see, if you are trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God does not see you as a Judas. Rather, God is looking at you through the eyes of Christ and he's saying, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Are you thankful that you have such an amazing God? Are you thankful for that? Are you thankful that the God is not looking at you if you trust in him through the 
lens of Judas, but is looking at you through the lens of Christ who has shed his blood for your sin, who has wiped away all the sin you commit against him. Well, if you are thankful, can I encourage you even now to whisper to him now in your heart your thanks to him. Thank him for wiping away your, be- your betrayal against him. Tell him it means the world to you. Ask God and ask God to help you take the sin, the weight of this, 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 this act of grace. And beloved, ask God to give you the courage to say no to betraying him. Because you see how ugly sin is. Every time you sin, you are betraying him that loves you. Who loves you unconditionally in Christ, who has purchased you for himself. So ask him to give you the courage to say no to betraying him. That's the first truth we learn here. The first truth is that Jesus was betrayed for us. The second truth we learn here is that Jesus was rejected for us. Jesus was rejected for us. Jesus was rejected for us. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the first prediction in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, our Lord Jesus told his disciples that he was going to suffer many things and be rejected by the Sanhedrin. Now Jesus gives us more detail on what that rejection will involve. Let's look at verse 33 again. He says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. You know, when we're sharing Jesus Christ in the Broadway like we're doing yesterday, right? Uh, we get to meet a lot of people. And some people have a lot of rude things to say to you uh, about when you're speaking to them. Some will just shout, you know, well, stop making noise. Uh, some will just be very, very, very rude. And, and sometimes when you're talking to them, you feel like pure scum. It can be painful when we are rejected like that, isn't it? But that rejection comes from strangers, so it doesn't really affect many of us who are sharing the gospel. But the rejection of Jesus here is, by the people, is infinitely worse because it's it's a rejection that is coming from the entire nation because these leaders are representing the entire nation. But it's also the rejection of the God who made them. The Son of Man, the Messiah of God here, uh, Jesus is saying, will be judged by his people. That they will declare him guilty and sentence him to death. The, 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 The leadership will declare the God who made them a sinner and pronounce him as a fraud and idolater who deserved death at their very hands. And that the right head of the Jewish nation, the Messiah, will be declared by the religious leaders who have been waiting for his arrival. They will now declare him an enemy of the state. And to ensure their dirty work is done, they will extradite our Lord. A bit like Julian Assange, isn't it? They will extradite our Lord into the hands of their pagan oppressors to put him to death. The nation will look to the outsiders to do their dirty work. And they will condemn him to death, Jesus says, and deliver Jesus 
over to the Gentiles. We must pause there. We must take that in. Because immediately we realize again that Jesus can stop this rejection by his people. Uh, but he doesn't. Because he's pressing on to Jerusalem, verse 33 tells us uh, that he's going to Jerusalem, we read in verse 32. In verse 33, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. He's going there despite, well, in spite, I get confused by those two words, but in spite of despite, knowing this. And we read, of course, of this rejection in Mark chapter 15, verse 1 to 4. It happened. You can flick there. Mark chapter 15, verse 1 to 4 says this. Here's the rejection of Jesus. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, you have said so. Verse 3, and the chief priest accused, accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked, have you no answer? See how many charges they, the Jews, bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Jesus was powerful enough to avoid that rejection. He is God. He could have just punished them. But Jesus chose to be rejected. Why did Jesus do that? Because Jesus came to suffer rejection for you. He came to be abused. He came to be shamed. He came to be dishonored that you may be saved and honored before God. You see, we have to understand here that the rejection that Jesus is facing at the hands of his people is a foreshadow of a deeper rejection Jesus is going to face from God himself. The good news of Jesus is not that Jesus was rejected by his people. That's part of it. The good news of Jesus is that God the Father himself on the cross rejected his own son. The Bible teaches us that right there on the cross as Jesus is dying, his father turns his face away from his son. And he allows his son to suffer the full wrath of judgment on our behalf. Jesus did that because, you see, Jesus was suffering rejection in your place. It should be you being rejected by the world. It should be you being rejected by God himself, whom you have dishonored, whom you have defamed with every action you do. But Jesus took your place. He suffered rejection in your place. The rejection that you and I deserve from God for rejecting to live under his leadership. And beloved, because Jesus was rejected in your place, if you have surrendered to him, you have now been welcomed home. If you are in Jesus, you are not rejected anymore. You are home now. Because Christ has been rejected in your place. You know, the American writer, Albert Hubbard, famously said, a friend is the person who knows all about you 
and yet still likes you. That's a friend. A friend is somebody who knows all about you and still likes you. Uh, by the way, that's why our friends on Facebook, they're not really our friends, right? Because <laughs> they don't really know all about us. But God knows all about you. He knows about the betrayal, just the secret betrayals in your own heart. He knows the many ways you reject him. And yet in Christ, he still likes you. He's still reaching out with love for you. That's the good news of Jesus. Uh, if you are in Jesus, God will never reject you because Christ has suffered rejection from God on your behalf. God is now in Christ your friend forever. That's why there's nothing like the good news of Jesus. Uh, it is a sensation of good news. In Jesus, God is a friend you have always dreamed of. We have many people in our lives who disappoint us, but God in Christ is not expecting us to perform. No, he reaches out to us so that we can be enthralled in his love. And everything we do is motivated by that love he has shown us. You know, God almost like, God essentially is like those companies, isn't it? That says, come to us despite your credit rating. And we know they're not going to give us much, are they? And then there's always like the fine print somewhere. But in Christ, God is saying, look, come, mercy, come as you are, come to me. I will love you, I'll accept you, I'll change you. Because my son has already been rejected on your behalf, in your place. And you know, when we come to God, God gives us his Holy Spirit, isn't he? And our spirit who lives in us is a guarantee of that permanent friendship we have with God. Until we see God himself face to face. Beloved, as we are studying in a Bible study, we are headed for the new heavens and the new earth. The entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there will be no, there will be no sign there that says on the door, no entry. No, we are already entered. That's the gospel. What a wonderful God we serve. The third truth we learn here is not only that Jesus was rejected for us, Jesus was tortured for us. Truth number one. The first truth is that Jesus was betrayed for us. Truth number two, Jesus was rejected for us. And we're just working through the passage. Truth number three, Jesus was tortured for us. And that's in verse 34. You know, Jesus is not just have knowledge that he was going to suffer terribly. He knew in advance who will inflict it and how terrible it will be. Look at verse 34. He says, and they will mock me, we might say, and spit on me. You can change the hymn there. Because he's talking about himself. They will mock me and spit on me and flog me and kill me. In one word, Jesus will be tortured by the Romans, the Gentiles, who the Jews who hand him over to. I just want to take these words in reverse order here because that is how they were fulfilled. First, Jesus will be flogged. And we know this was fulfilled in Mark 15, verse 15, where we read, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged or flogged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The key point I just want to underline here, beloved, is that it is the Romans who flogged Jesus, not the Jews. That detail is very important. Why? 
Because the Jews administered synagogue floggings of 40 lashes minus one, as Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians. And they administered it with rods, right? The Romans used something different. They administered it with cat or nine tails, which had no limit. They could just keep whipping you forever. The instrument that the Romans used consisted of a long, it consisted of this thing with sort of long leather straps embedded with pieces of bone of glass or glass, right? And occasionally it will have lead balls which were woven into the thongs to increase the impact of the blows on the body. And you know, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us the ferocity of the Roman flogging could even leave a man lacerated to the bone with scourges. In fact, the only stipulation in Roman law was that a man should be flogged until the flesh hung from his back. The blows fell into the skin, as it were, until the skin split open and the muscles were severed, until ligaments tore and the bone was chipped. And some men who were flogged by the Romans were disemboweled. Many did not survive Roman flogging. That's, and Jesus, is, when he was flogged, it was severe. That's actually why Jesus died very, didn't last very long. Because some people could hang on the cross for nine days. Jesus died after six hours. This is the torture that Jesus, our Lord and God, willingly allowed himself to take on your behalf for you. It is a gruesome brutality inflicted by the God who made the heavens and the earth by sinners. The second thing our Lord reveals here is that mere creatures he fashioned to strip away his dignity by mocking and spitting on their creator. He says that here, doesn't it? In verse 34. And they will mock him and spit on him. You know, can you remember uh, a humiliation from childhood that seemed to burn your heart, so to speak, right? A hole in your heart, right? Can you remember that? Perhaps you wore clothes and kids, your friends teased you, or maybe you said the wrong thing at the wrong time at the top of your voice, or perhaps you had a wrong accent or something, and they, or you just dressed funny, and people made funny of that, right? Many of us carry such painful childhood memories into our adult life. We may think they're just childhood things, but we all have memories. And I know some people have been severely affected for what they went through at school. This is why we take bullying in schools very, very seriously. Right? It may sound foolish, but the pains of childhood can reach deep within us. Mocking particularly fills us with shame and outrage at the injustice we've suffered. It is verbal violence that cuts deeply. And here we are saying Jesus suffered mocking. He embraced to be mocked. And we read about this mocking of Jesus in Mark chapter 15, verse 29 to verse 32. You can look it up. He says this, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, 
he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. You know, we can safely say that the last words Jesus heard in the moments before his death were insults. If spit was on his face, scorn was in his ears. And the amazing thing that you contemplate what's going on here, the amazing thing is that Jesus allowed all of these things to happen to him. He came as a suffering servant to fulfill the words of Isaiah 53, verse 7 to 10. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But by oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. And then we read this in verse 10 of Isaiah. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Beloved, what Isaiah is telling us, what Jesus himself is telling us by seeing what's coming, the torture that's coming, and yet determinedly walking towards Jerusalem, he is saying the torture of the cross that is coming to him is an act of God himself. Jesus came as a suffering servant to take upon himself the punishment you deserve. And that's the point. That is the point. As bad as this physical torture, as, as bad as this cut on nine tails, as bad as the flogging off of his flesh from, from, from his bones, as bad as that is, the real torture, beloved, is not the physical torture, it is the spiritual torture. Because on the cross, God pours his full wrath on Jesus Christ. He is, he is full wrath and judgment. Jesus is punished for on our behalf. Because the torture of Christ, while he was in this world, is the means through which God keeps all who trust in Jesus from the eternal torture of the fiery hell. And so the choice of every human being is very simple. You could allow Christ to suffer the punishment you deserve on your behalf, or you could take on God yourself. You could face God on your terms and suffer wrath and judgment in hell. But if you're trusting in Christ, well, this is the good news. Christ has suffered, has been tortured in your place. Jesus has come to be flogged, mocked, spat on, so you can be dressed in the grace of God. How do we respond to this, beloved? How do we respond to a God who loves us this much? How can we respond? 
Only with tears, beloved. Only with tears. There is no words. There are passages of the Bible where we come to them that perhaps we are even preaching on this issue, preaching on this verse, feels like we are trampling on the very throne of God. Because what we are seeing here is God being crushed in our place. How do we respond? We respond with tears. God is so wonderful to us. What a savior. Here's a final point we see here. Jesus was not only betrayed for us. Jesus was not only rejected for us. Jesus was not only tortured for us. The final point Jesus says here is that Jesus was killed for us. Jesus was killed for us. Jesus' suffering will culminate in his crucifixion. Look at verse 34. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And we are sitting here this afternoon because this wonderful prophecy of the crucifixion of Jesus has happened. Mark chapter 15 verse 33 tells us about the crucifixion. Doesn't it? It says, and, this, in the, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The Lamb of God is slain. You know, you see, by Jesus telling us in advance... His death, which we just read about in Mark chapter 15, Jesus is making clear that he's dying by appointment, not by accident. His death for us is a willing sacrifice for sin. Now, now the sacrifice of Jesus, in some sense, is to die for us is not unusual. We read about mothers dying for their children, don't we? We read about fathers doing courageous acts to put their life on the line. And some of you are mothers and fathers and have other children. You would sacrifice your lives, I'm sure, for your children. What makes the sacrifice of Jesus unique is who he is. And it's right there in front of us in verse 33. Did you see that? Mark 10, verse 33. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Who is going up to Jerusalem? The Son of Man. And as we've been going through Mark, we've been underlying this title. We've been reminding ourselves, it's not like we read it in Sunday school. The Son of Man doesn't mean Jesus is man. Okay, he is, right? The Son of Man means Jesus is fully God and is fully man. This title comes from Daniel 7. Jesus is the one who approaches the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, verse 14 to 15, who takes power from the Ancient of Days. It is God himself. To him is given dominion and power to rule because Jesus is God. And Jesus here is reminding us and the disciples that Jesus is God willingly laying down his life on those crossbeams to be crushed as one of us in our 
place. Isn't that what Jesus tells us in Mark 10, verse 45? For for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is God dying on the cross for your sin. It is impossible to get our heads around how the creator of the universe could allow himself to be killed by creatures he made. How can the great king willingly die at the hands of the citizens for their benefits? How can the father let himself be killed by children he brought into this world? The depth of our sin against God is only, is only, is only outmatched by the infinite condescension of God's great love and kindness towards us. His willingness to suffer at the hands of creatures. Beloved, are you trusting in Jesus this evening? Have you come to that position of true and genuine repentance? Can you say you are a slave of Christ? Can you say you know this Jesus who has so richly laid down his life for your sin? Well, if you you are, let the humiliation of Christ remind you of how gloriously gracious, how kind your God is to you. You know, we get used to hearing about Jesus every Easter, we, about what much he's done. You, you know what I've told you today. But allow yourself to enter, to gaze at Calvary's cross afresh. Sometimes you forget that you do not deserve Christ. You are prone to forget that you deserve the everlasting humiliation at the hands of God. You forget that you deserve to suffer. You deserve to be rejected. I know you're suffering in your life, but you deserve much more. You deserve much more. You forget that. You forget that you deserve to be rejected, to be mocked, to be tortured, to be cut off from God forever. But thank God, God has entered this world and he has changed the arithmetic for you. One has died for all. So that all who come to him would enter heaven. Jesus has been humiliated for us. The wrath of God has been satisfied for you. The grace of God now flows richly to you through the veins of your Redeemer. Are you struggling with illness, perhaps? With loneliness? Is there a feeling of God being distant in your life at the moment? Is your mind clouded? with worry about the future. If you are trusting in Jesus, be encouraged. Because the truth of the matter is that if you have surrendered to Jesus, you are now home with Christ. He has purchased a wonderful welcome for you in the presence of God. Go to him with your worries now, your concerns. Let him at his feet. Don't let your struggle with sin keep you from him. Christ, listen, Christ was not humiliated for the perfect. Christ has not come to suffer torture and shame for those who have it all together. Those who feel they must make up, they must keep up appearances of perfection. 
No, Christ came for sinners. Sinners. All shapes and sizes, sinners. If you are a sinner, you qualify. And if you have surrendered to Jesus, his grace is flowing for you. And if you haven't, come to him now. Surrender to him. And when you're in Christ, you need to remember this truth, beloved, because the devil uses our sin to make us feel we cannot go to God and find the precious help we need. You know, my, my favorite author, Robert Mary McShane of Scotland, he said this, when I have sinned, when I have sinned against God, I feel an immediate reluctance to go to Christ. I am ashamed to go to him. I feel as if it would do me no good, as if I am making Christ a minister of sin, to go straight from the swine trough to the best rope, and a thousand other excuses, McShane said. But I am persuaded. All of them, all of them, they are all lies, direct from hell. And he's right, isn't it? If you are in Christ, the humiliation of Christ, uh, he's, he's being betrayed, he's being rejected, he's being tortured, he's being killed. The humiliation of Christ has now made you his precious possession. So come as you are to him. Don't let sin keep you away from him. God will help you overcome your sin, and by his grace, you will find relief in all areas. You, all areas you need in accordance with his sovereign will and purpose. And your Lord Jesus has set you free. Beloved, do not look anywhere else. Where are you going to find a savior like this? Where are you going to find God being crushed for you? Where are you going to find your hope against the very wrath of God? Where are you going to find a savior who welcomes you? into his loving arms. I don't know what your situation is this afternoon, but whatever it is, whether it is in your life, it is in the life of a home issue, a work issue, or in, and indeed the church issue. If you are in Christ, Jesus has been humiliated for you. Christ was the word, and he holds you too in him. So hold on to Christ. Stick with Christ. Rest your faith in his humiliation for you. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock me. And spit on me and flog me, and kill me, after three days, I will rise. That's the gospel. Amen.